Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Scott Gilliland, and as Stan said, I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It's a joy to be with you on this Sunday as we continue in the series called Soul Reset. And to begin our time together, we're going to be talking about uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11 and 12. A a few verses at the end of 11, uh, teaching that Jesus offers us, and then a a couple of vignettes at the beginning of chapter 12 that uh, Jesus shows us the kind of life and faith that he's talking about. To get us there and to set the stage, though, I want to talk about something I read this past week in a magazine called Mental Floss. It's a magazine that perhaps you've never heard of, but uh, people who, like me, love random factoids and trivia that are completely useless in real life outside of game shows, uh, uh, or maybe you're a little bit nerdy, Mental Floss is, is precisely for you. They had an article this past week called The Origins of Etiquette, where they were looking at uh, why some of these things that we do, that we do every single day, or we do out of tradition's sake sometimes. Um, Why do we do these things? Where did they come from? And so I want to share some with you this morning. First one, we say bless you after someone sneezes. Why is that? This practice dates back to the year 590 CE when Pope Gregory I commanded that anyone who sneezed must be immediately blessed for fear they had contracted the plague, right? Got to get the demons out of them. Uh, We shake hands when we greet one another. Normally, we're doing more elbow bumps now, but we shake hands upon greeting because several centuries ago in England, it was a way for you to know that the person you were greeting and you were both unarmed, right? So you would reach out and shake their hands so they knew you weren't carrying a sword or something. Uh, Keep your elbows off the table, right? Back in the medieval era, lords and ladies would have these big feasts and the tables would be cram-packed with people so there wasn't a lot of space. And if you put your elbows on the table, it meant that maybe you were one of those lowly peasants who really needed to eat and you weren't one of those well-fed, upper-class people that didn't need to eat so badly, right? We cover our mouths when we yawn because we're afraid back in the day that our soul might escape our body and we've got to catch it real quick or make sure the evil spirits don't come inside of our mouths while we're yawning. We allow, uh, in weddings, we have, uh, as a man is escorting a woman down the aisle, they're always on the right side of the man. This was back in medieval times again. A knight that is right-handed would have a harder time attacking a woman on the right side of a man. So that was the safer place for her to walk. Quickly now, uh, we shower brides with gifts because dowries used to be very important. And what was a bride to do if her parents did not approve of the wedding? Well, her friends and and extended family would shower her with gifts so she could provide a dowry. And so today, when someone gets married, I ask the bride's parents, how do you feel? They say, we love the guy. I say, great, no gifts. You know, um, little joke. Lastly, a a few rapid fire here. We touch glasses when we toast to make sure that the other person's not trying to poison us. We give RSVPs because uh, rich people thought that French was fancy. Revendé, s'il vous plaît. We don't point at people when we're talking about them because then our evil eyes energy is directed at them. We don't wear white after Labor Day because very rich women one day long ago decided that they were going to show how rich they were by buying new clothes every time the season changed. And we pull out a lady's chair for her because back in the day, Their dresses were just simply too large to even reach the chair. Of course, now my wife wears pants, so I say get your own chair, right? I'm kidding. (laughs) Kidding. Kidding. Etiquette. 
the social norms, the things we do because it's the things we do, right? It's the way that we've been raised from an early age. We keep our elbows off the table. We shake people's hands. We don't point at them when we're talking. And, and yet, you know, over time, we get this laundry list of things that we are or are not supposed to do. And if you don't measure up, then maybe someone might scold you. Maybe someone might tell you, get your elbows off the table. Don't you know you're not supposed to point at people? And what happens when our faith begins to look more like that? A series of expectations a series of things that we do because we're just supposed to do them. Don't you know that's what you're supposed to do? A, a series of expectations, a, a bar that's set so high as if it's almost impossible to reach. And when we do get it wrong, when we do mess up, sometimes that shame, that guilt, that fear can come rushing over us. What do we do when our faith begins to look like that? What do we do when our churches stop being houses of hope and grace and become temples of judgment? where people are told that they simply don't measure up, where only the most righteous are allowed to enter in and everyone else is left wondering if they're beyond the reach and love of God. What do we do with a church like that, with a faith like that? That's the kind of church and the kind of faith that Jesus encounters at the end of Matthew chapter 11 as he's speaking to some really good churchy people. Some Jews who were gathered there listening to him. These are the churchiest of church folk. They would have been here on a Sunday morning in the pews. And Jesus offers these, these churchy people, the following words. Let's rise for the reading of God's word this morning. To the folks who never miss a Sunday, Jesus says, come to me, all of you. Who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. The word of God for the people of God, and let us say, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I started going to church when I was five years old, and, and I went to spend the summers with my grandparents in Greensboro, Georgia, and I went to Greensboro United Methodist Church for their vacation Bible school. That was the first time I went to church. I started going to my own church with my family when I was in the third grade, William C. Martin United Methodist Church in Bedford, Texas, just down the road. And I ended up joining that church when I was in the sixth grade. I went through confirmation and I learned about really lofty ideas like the Trinity and the power of the Holy Spirit and the birthing of the church and all these things I didn't really fully understand. But I knew who Jesus was and I loved Jesus. So I joined my church. I took those covenant vows and I became a member. But that was not the last church that I would join. I joined the Church of Social Acceptance when I was in the seventh grade. I joined the Church of Pride when I was 15. I joined the Church of Independence and Self-Reliance when I was 17. I joined the Church of Perfectionism. Any other members in the room? I joined that church when I was 22. I joined the Church of Money and Possessions when I was 23. I joined the Church of Status and Importance when I was 25. During the course of my life, I've joined a lot of churches. I have a lot of membership cards. 
Because churches don't just have four walls and a steeple, do they, church? I think anything that promises us purpose and fulfillment and joy in life in exchange for a personal sacrifice, that can be a church. Anything that offers us purpose, fulfillment, or joy in life in exchange for a personal sacrifice can be a church. The first century Jews had a relationship like that with their church and with their faith. They'd been handed burdensome rules, oppressive commitments, impossible to reach expectations, all in exchange for a salvation that felt beyond their grasp. They'd been presented with a life and a faith that said, if you want to experience salvation, if you want to experience joy, if you want to find your purpose and what will make you whole, then here's the list of things that you have to do. Good luck. And so the life of faith really became a life devoted to becoming more churchy, not more faithful. Rather than learning how to be in relationship with God, the Jewish people had learned how to be in relationship with rules. Have you ever had a faith like that? I have. They'd forgotten how to worship God in their effort to worship church. And it's to those people, it's to us, it's to the pew sitters and the every Sunday attendees. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. You'll find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear. My burden is light. My friends, What I hear Jesus saying to them and to us today is this. We're not called to worship churches. We're called to worship Jesus. We're not called to worship churches. We are called to worship Jesus. Our own mission statement here at Lover's Lane is not loving all people into relationship with Lover's Lane United Methodist Church. It's not loving all people onto our membership roles. Our mission statement is loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling these churchy people to remember that the life of faith was never meant to be about a list of demands that inspired fear or shame or guilt. The faith that Jesus preaches is one rooted in, as the great Eugene Peterson says in his message translation, it's where our call to worship came from today. He says that Jesus' message is rooted in the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. The unforced rhythms of grace. Now, these little churches we join in our lives, the churches of money or power or position or politics or status or career or personal pleasure-seeking or you fill in the blank for yourself, what are the churches you are a member of? Whatever churches you've joined, none of them, not even this one, can offer what Jesus can. Where they may have a lot of fine print and a laundry list of conditions and expectations that have to be met, they still can let us down. Maybe we don't get everything that we thought we had worked and sacrificed so hard for. Or worse yet, maybe we get everything that we thought we wanted and it turns out to be hollow and not at all what we needed in the end. My friends, it's time that we stopped living in service to the little churches that promise and require so much and yet ultimately offer us so little. It's time we removed our membership from some of these churches. So the first question I have for us today is, what churches do you need to withdraw your membership from? 
In the Methodist church, when someone transfers to a new church, they're supposed to send a letter to the new church that says, by the way, or to the old church, by the way, be sure to take them off your rolls, right? Who who do you need to write a letter to this week? Is it the church of money or greed or power or politics or position? What's the church that you need to leave this week? And and, and friends, you're not going to fix yourself in a week or even in the 40 days of Lent. So don't don't trouble yourself trying to become a finished product this week. Consider removing yourself from just one church. Just one church. For me in my life, that's the church of money and possessions right now. Maybe you're like me. I get in the habit of thinking that that one gadget or that new hobby or that next thing is just going to make me so happy. And it's just going to satisfy my soul in ways I could never even understand. Anybody else like this in the room? And what happens? We get the new thing. We take up the new hobby. And over time, our attention fades. It breaks. It's not as great as we thought it would be. And then we move on to the next thing. So I'm removing my membership from that church. I'm trying. I'm taking back the money and the energy and the time that I've spent at the church of money and possessions. And I'm asking myself, how can I devote these things to greater love of Jesus? So what churches do you need to withdraw your membership from? Now, Jesus is a really good teacher. And the best teachers don't just tell us important things. They show us what those things look like. Jesus shows us what this kind of life of faith looks like in the next story. Matthew chapter 12 picks up in verse 1 right where we left off. And it says this. At that time, Jesus went through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they were picking heads of wheat and eating them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. But he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? He went into God's house and broke the law by eating the bread of the presence, like the really good sacred stuff, which only the priests were allowed to eat. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple treat the Sabbath as any other day? They get to eat, and they're still innocent. But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The human one is the Lord of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus and his disciples in breaking one of the most basic, good, churchy person rules that exist. You don't work on the Sabbath, right? That is just a fundamental good church person rule in their day. And work in those days included harvesting from a field. So even plucking a single grain from a stalk of wheat, that was work. And they'd broken the rules. Jesus, Jesus, again, proves not to be very churchy, right? But he calls out the Pharisees, and really he calls out us. When we get so caught up in the rules of church or the rules of faith that we suck the joy and the life out of faith, and what has been a source of life is now a source of starvation. The Pharisees would rather the disciples go hungry and starve than eat a simple meal on a day that is supposed to be restful. I don't know about you, but I can't rest when I'm hangry, right? They would rather them starve. It's a simple reminder to me that faith should fill us up and not burn us out. 
Faith should fill us up and not burn us out. The Pharisees' approach to faith is the approach that so many churches and Christians have today. It's this approach that says it's all about the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, then you're not allowed in, and you're going to get a finger wag, and you're going to get shame and guilt, and it's driving people to exhaustion and out of relationship with Jesus. Are we called? Here's something I want us to, to be clear about, though. Are we called to self-denial? Absolutely. As Christians, are we called to self-sacrifice in our faith? Yes, period. The same Jesus who says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is the same Jesus who will later say, pick up your cross and follow me. But what we lose sight of so often is that we're not called to sacrifice simply for sacrifice's sake. We're not called to martyrdom for martyrdom's sake. We're called to denial and sacrifice and selflessness for Jesus' sake. And Jesus does not want us to become burned out shells of ourselves who lose our faith altogether. I'm going to say that again because someone in the room needs to hear it this morning. Jesus does not want you to become a burned out shell of yourself who loses your faith altogether. The life of faith should fill us up. Even if on simple meals like the one shared by the disciples in the field. My friends, we are not promised extravagance and prosperity in the traditional sense. But we are promised an abundant life that comes from an inner joy and strength that the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as he prepares to suffer and die. Filled up even as he suffers. I think we buy into this false dichotomy in the church today that says Jesus either calls us to the really fun and easy stuff that fills us up, that we love, or Jesus calls us only to the really challenging and difficult stuff that burns us out, that wears us out. And here's the problem with that. So the really fun, easy stuff. Let's talk about that for a moment. This is the stuff that fills us up, that, that's, that's easy, that's fun. It's the stuff we already want to do. For me, that is binging Netflix shows. Anybody else love Netflix? And the next one's just going to come on in 15 more seconds, right? And how quickly does a day go by? And as much as that can fill me up and let me rest, God is not calling me to spend my days binging Netflix, right? At the same time, the really difficult, really challenging stuff, the stuff that sucks the life out of me, am I going to be there at times in life? Yes, we all are. We live in a broken and challenging world. There are going to be days that burn us out. But if we spend our lives living in that kind of a place, we are not living the life that God is calling us to. That is not a life of abundance. That's a life of draining and burning out. But when we find that place where what fills us up and what wears us out come together, now that's a special place. What fills us up and what wears us out. What, what am I talking about? I love being a dad. I love being a dad. It's one of my favorite joys in all of the world. And, and this past weekend, or actually this weekend, is my birthday weekend. You're still here for it. Go you. This is my birthday weekend, right? Big day for me. 32. Doesn't come every year. Big day. So my wife is going to throw me a birthday party at our house. And we're going to have all of our friends over. She goes, we're going to have all your friends over. Oh, great. And their kids. Oh, awesome, so good, so happy. So last night, we had 20 people in our house, and a half dozen of them were children, but you know that that half dozen is weighted, right? That's a weighted half dozen. 
And it was loud, and it was crazy, and, and, and there was food on the floor, and food on the walls, and food in places where food shouldn't be. And Frozen 2 was on the TV, and it was turned up way too loud, and, and it was chaotic, and kids were screaming and yelling, and I couldn't hear my friends talking all the time. And at one point, my daughter's favorite novelty glass fell on the ground and shattered, and she had tears streaming down her face, and it was a mess, but then we were okay. And then one of her friends uh, went home in my daughter's dinosaur costume and slept in it last night and even came to church in the same dinosaur costume this morning. It was nuts. It was exhausting. As soon as everyone was out the door, I laid down and I was asleep in like 10 minutes flat. I was worn out. And I was filled up. And I loved it. Because I love being a dad. Even though it's not the birthday party I might have thrown for myself, it was the birthday party I needed to go to. What fills us up and what wears us out, the things that exist in that space, that, that's the special secret sauce. That's the magical place. That's the unique place where the, the work that God has to do in this world, the, the, the opportunities that God sees in this world, and your uniquely called and equipped self, those things meet in that space. The things that you could do all day and they wear you out, but you go to bed filled up at the end. What are those things for you? What fills you up and wears you out? Because that is exactly why God put you, yes, you, on this earth at this time. So that's my second question for us this morning. What fills me up and wears me out? Because that's what we ought to spend our lives doing the most of. Those are the things that matter, that last, but they're also the things that won't burn us out in the process. The life of faith should bring us life and joy and strength and passion and everything that makes any life worth living, and it should take us to places that are hard and even painful because that's the unique place where God's work is greatly needed and where we are uniquely called and equipped. So maybe you're asking, Jesus, what does that look like? That sounds incredible. What does that look like in real life? And, and Jesus is a good teacher, and he's about to show us. So the story continues in verse 9. It says, Jesus left that place and went into their synagogue. He went to church. A man with a withered hand was there. Wanting to bring charges against Jesus, they asked, the Pharisees asked, does the law allow a person to heal on the Sabbath? You can almost hear them going, hmm, hmm, you know, they think they've got him now. Jesus replied, who among you has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath and will not take hold of it and pull it out? How many of you are going to look at that sheep in a hole and say, sorry, it's the Sabbath? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep, he says. So the law allows a person to do what is good on the Sabbath. And then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he did. And it was made healthy like that. Just like the other one. The Pharisees went out and met in order to find a way to destroy Jesus because he broke the rules. Jesus knew what they intended to do, so he went away from there. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. My friends, we, we have to acknowledge that unfortunately for a lot of people, the life of faith and the relationship with a rules-based church has been a source of wounds. It's 
been a source of wounds. I think about this man with the withered hand. He grew up in that, in that area most likely. He, he grew up going to that synagogue. As a little boy being told, sit up straight, keep your elbows off the table, make sure you look a man in the eyes when you're shaking his hand, make sure the woman walks on your right side. He did everything he was supposed to do in his life of faith. He was a good church-going boy who became a good church-going man. And week after week, he would go to this church and he'd hear a priest stand up and tell him about a faith that would bring him healing and bring him wholeness and bring him life and freedom. And he knew these things were possible. And then as a man, one day, would you not believe it a healer comes into his church this moment he's been waiting for the promises he's been told he says today's my day I'm gonna get healed and as he goes forward to have his hand be healed a hand comes across his chest and they say no not you not today that's breaking the rules you're not getting healed imagine that do you know how that feels This man was wounded, but I'm not talking about his hand. This man was wounded in his heart and his soul. Everything he'd been told to do, he did. And then the day comes for his healing, and they say, no, not you, not today. You're not getting healed. We have churches that preach hope and promise and redemption, and people come forward to be healed in many and myriad different ways, and they say, no, not you. That'd be breaking the rules. You're not getting healed. I want to say very clearly that if your faith or if you ever go to a church and you hear a pastor, folks listening on the radio right now, if you drive to a church this morning and you hear a pastor talk about faith in a way that brings you deep personal shame or they offer you guilt or fear or anxiety in the name of Jesus, it is time to walk away from that church, that pastor, that relationship with rules And to step back into relationship with Jesus. The shame and the guilt and the anxiety and the fear, those are gifts from the Pharisees. They're gifts from good churchy people like you and me. I have given people judgment in the name of Jesus before, and and, and I can admit that. But those are not the gifts that Jesus offers. Jesus always only offers grace and healing and tender care to the wounded and to the hurting. But here's the really crazy cool thing. And this is why I'm in love with Jesus. Because as Jesus heals our wounds, as Jesus makes you and me whole, Jesus opens us up to opportunity for that healing to be magnified and multiplied in the world around us. Did you notice that as soon as this man is healed, Jesus is run out of the synagogue and this crowd follows him and everybody is healed as a result. This man's story of healing becomes the catalyst for an enormous multitude of healing just a moment later. One of my favorite theologians is a Dutch man, former Harvard professor, now deceased, named Henry Nouwen, who has a knack for taking really lofty, inaccessible theology and making it really grounded and relatable and accessible for those of us who are normal, everyday human beings. And in his book, The Wounded Healer, he says this, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed. He says the main question is how can we put our woundedness in the service 
of others. When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. I love that question that he offers us. How can we put our woundedness in the service of others? How can we put our woundedness in the service of others? It's the kind of question that I hear Jesus asking of us in our scripture today. It was through Jesus' wounds that the world was saved. Being wounded doesn't make us weak or ruined. It makes us human. And Jesus was human too. So as we continue in our season of Lent and soul reset, as we seek wholeness in our lives that comes through walking more closely with Jesus, can we remember the kind of faithfulness that Jesus is calling every good churchy person to? The kind of faith that walks away from rules-based, empty promise churches, no matter what kind of church it is. The kind of faith that finds purpose in what fills us up even while it wears us out. The kind of faith that redeems wounds into sources of healing. And so tell me, church, if you're tired of living a churchy life, doesn't this one sound so much better? I think it's time for a reset. Amen.